Last Sunday, we began talking about positioning ourselves for the blessing of God. And uh, we started in Malachi because we were reading there that God's people were doing all their religious activity. They were doing that which needed to be done. But yet somehow or another, the windows of heaven had not opened over them. And so God related their return to him with regards to their tithe. And so we spent a good deal of time talking about that and how the Lord has things to talk about in the area of finance. And so we began to lay a foundation for some of the things that I want to teach this Sunday. And remember, I told you, I think this was several weeks ago that I told you this. I told you that I'm, going, I'm endeavoring, if I can't get it all said in one Sunday, I'll just go to part two and part three. And so last week I said, I know I got at least a part two. But now I figured out I got at least a part three as well. So, so that first Sunday in November, I'm probably going to share just a little bit more because it seems like once you start on this hunt, there's always so much more to share. And last Sunday, we just laid a foundation on some areas that that will position, if you want to be, it will position you in order for God to pour out a blessing you'll not be able to contain. And uh, that was the key. The key was that God wants to open up the windows of heaven. He wants to rebuke the devourer uh, from your life and from what's going on, and he wants to break the curse off of you. God wants to do that. Can you say amen? I've found all through life that the issue is not on God's side of the equation. The issue is usually on my side of the equation. And so God has a heart to do all sorts of wonderful, incredible, exceedingly abundant things in your life. But if you don't position yourself for him to be able to do that, then he can't. And that's, that's how God has set it up. You, you can't drag God into your universe and just say, you've got to do it according to my universe. God says it doesn't work that way. You're going to have to position yourself the way he says and the way he has designed in order for him to do these exceedingly abundant things. And that's an important starting place because without it, What I ultimately want to share with you can be misunderstood and it will not operate in your life as God intended and designed it. And this morning, my lesson I've entitled, Moving the Hand of God. Moving the Hand of God. Last week I talked about positioning yourself in order to be under the faucet. But now you have to understand what it means, what it takes, and what your responsibility is in the equation to begin to see the hand of God moving in your life. Can I ask you again, how many of you would like God's hand to move in some areas in your life? I mean, there are some things I know in my household, in my life, that I sure enough want to see God begin to move his hand in those areas. Well, let's talk about that this morning. And if you've opened up your Bibles, turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. I want to read one verse. This morning, uh, Dan or Jerry, I'm not sure who's back there. Is Dan back there today? Uh, Dan and Jerry are faithful to run the, the computer screen. And I ran up to him this morning. I said, here, put this verse in there. And uh, you see, because every message I do, those of you that have been with me, you know that I put a text in there, right? It's like I, I give a lesson title and then I'll give you a text. Well I, well, I did this lesson and I didn't have a text for it. And, and I thought somehow or another that wasn't holy, even though there's lots of Bible that I will read to you. So I, so I ran to Dan and I gave him a text because somehow or another it just didn't feel right starting a message without having a text. And so I was reading through Isaiah and I came across this verse and I thought that verse is as good as any I've seen on this subject. I will read this for the text. And we'll springboard off of that. Isaiah 40 verse 10. Behold, the Lord God shall come 
with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. Isn't that a great verse? He shall come with a strong hand, his arm shall rule, and his reward is with him. Isaiah prophesies here that there's going to come a moment, if we understand God's precepts, that he will put his hand in our situation. That there's a moment that he will reveal his arm in our circumstance, and as his hand is placed in our situation, and as his arm is revealed, the good news is is that he brings a reward. I, I like that. The Hebrew writer says that if we'll seek God by faith, he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God is a rewarder. A lot of us think that he simply wants to take and take and take and take from us. And it is true, do not be mistaken, that he asks of us something, but not to just take it away from you as much as it is that if he can put his hand and his arm in your situation, he won't take it from you, but he will more than return, he will more than restore, and he will more than reward. And you got to get that revelation of God. If you can get that revelation of the heart of the Father, let me tell you something, you would give it all away. Because God's hand can move in people that will do that. And all through the Bible, and even some in our own personal experiences, you'll find characters, people, who have learned somehow, some way to move the hand of God. It's as if they have stumbled upon, or at least they've learned, what they need to do in order to get God's attention in their situation. Have you ever been in a place in life where you needed to get God's attention in your circumstance? I mean, have you ever found yourself at a moment where you said, I need God in this circumstance. I need God in this situation. And you recognize your need for him and his hand to move. But the question is, it's as if I don't have his attention. How do I get God's attention? How do, how do I get him to begin to pay, pay attention and, and put his focus on what is going on in my life? How, how do I do that before what I'm facing destroys me? How do I get God to pay attention to where I am and what's happening to me or, or my family before it causes calamity? How can I see God's hand, as the Bible says, move in my circumstance like I need to see him move? Is that possible? Is it even appropriate to ask that question. I find out that there are a lot of people who've grown up in religion that are even frightened or fearful or have been taught not even to ask the question. Somehow or another, we aren't to ask of God anything. We aren't to seek Him for anything. We aren't to somehow woo Him to our situation for any reason. Somehow or another, we're just supposed to, to just sit there and take it, however it comes to us. There are two tangents they get taught in the body of Christ that I believe are both uh, equally, they're, they're opposite from one another, but they are both equally in error. And, and I, want, I want to share these two tangents in order that we can find out where the truth is. The first tangent that gets taught in the body of Christ that, that gets twisted, it, it gets perverted. It, it's the tangent that says this. We are slaves of God. Now, the Bible does say we're slaves of righteousness. In other words, we're attached to righteousness but, but there's this, this instruction that has gone on in the body of Christ that somehow or another, 
we, 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 are, we are slaves. We have a slave mentality when it comes to how we relate to God. Now, there are a couple verses that I want to make sure you underline in your Bible and you understand. And again, this is just one tangent. I'm going to go to the other one here in just a minute. But John 15, 15, read what Jesus says right here. John 15, 15, it says this. No longer do I call you servants. Some of your versions will say slaves. No longer do I call you that. For a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. So ultimately, Jesus wants a relationship with us that's, that's not just this not just master-slave, but he wants a relationship with us that he can call us friend. He wants to let us know what he's up to. He wants to let us know what he's doing. He, he wants to walk with us. In fact, in Romans eight seventeen, the Bible clearly says, Paul would write later, that you and I have become joint heirs. We become co-heirs with Jesus Christ himself. In Ephesians 2, 6, the Bible tells us that we've been seated together with him in heavenly places. Now, let me just say quickly, I understand who's God and who's human. I understand quickly that I, I am in no way, no shape, no form to be associated with exactly who Jesus is. He's fully God and fully man. I understand his awesome, transcendent place in the universe and in my life. But we need to understand what God has provided for us lest we don't apprehend all that we need in order to accomplish life well. He says that we have become joint heirs, co-heirs with Jesus Christ himself. That's not me, that's the Bible. We have been seated with him in heavenly places. Now, obviously, we should have a servant's heart, but we're no longer these menial ants who God's just looking for a reason to squash. God redeems us. He loves us. He's got a plan for us. We are the pinnacle of his creation. The Bible says that he created us just a little bit lower than himself. So there's something noble within the heart of a redeemed man or a redeemed woman that God wants to work in and through and with. And so we sort of have to break out of the mentality that somehow, you know, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just nothing in the eyes of God. We need to understand we are the righteousness of God. We are children of the king. We've been redeemed with the price to bring us up in order that we might fulfill and be all that he's called us to be. So, so there's this tangent that we've got to break from that somehow or another, you know, we're just, we're worse than what we used to call toe jam. You know, we're worse than that. But the other tangent is this. And that is we've developed sort of a mentality that somehow or another, number two, is that somehow God is a slave of us. God is a slave of us. That we can somehow just yank God around, jerk him around at our leisure and our desire. And, and, and we've sort of developed, particularly in our circles, this understanding that if I just do A, B, C, and D, that God somehow must and is obligated to do what I commanded him to do. He's sort of like the genie in the bottle. Or sort of like the benevolent granddad that we can manipulate. That somehow or another we can yank him around and jerk him around just because I want it and I want what I want. And we need to also remember that God cannot, because of his nature, be manipulated by his creation. So there's these two tangents. One is that somehow we're worth nothing. And then the other side of this is that somehow we can just yank and jerk God around just to do absolutely anything we want him to do. 
So, so let's understand, I, I, these two areas need to be avoided. But having said both of these things, I want you to be confident of this, that God is looking and he's responding to those who will work with him and are willing to understand how his ways work. God wants to move his people from not only their traumatic, tragic, uh, difficult, challenging circumstances into a better life, but as I mentioned last week, he's wanting to move us from just good to great. He really wants to bring us into, into a, a time and a, and, and a life and, and an atmosphere that we can begin to do incredible exploits for him in the earth. It really is in his mind that we are to win the nations of the world. It is really in his mind that we are to be distinguished in the earth. It is really in his mind that he created us to be like him. For he said, as I am holy and uncommon, I want you to be holy and uncommon. So it is in the heart of God that all of these things begin to happen. But you need to understand right off the bat that it takes something you must do in order to cooperate with that heart and with that agenda in order for that to begin to take place. The other day I was forwarded an email that had an interesting little movie on it. Uh, some of you perhaps already have watched it because uh, I forwarded it through the church and I wanted everybody that had opportunity to take a look at that uh, particular email because it was just kind of cool the way it was presented. And it, and it talked about just presenting ourselves and, and doing that little bit extra in order that we can see a greater thing begin to take place. And guys, if you're ready to do that, dim the lights and I want you to watch the screen overhead and I just want you to catch a little bit of this as it came to me.
As I mentioned, that was emailed to me, and I, I, I just thought it synopsized uh, so many things to encourage us to not settle for just average, but begin to press into that which ultimately we've been apprehended for. In Isaiah 55, verse 8, there's some familiar words there. Isaiah 55, verse 8, it says this, that God's ways are not our ways, nor are his thoughts our thoughts. Now, all of us at one time or another have had erroneous thoughts about God. It's one of the saddest things that in the society we live in, in America, and it's a free society ostensibly, and and information goes out freely, it's amazing how much error there is out there. In in fact, I've often said this, if you preach an error long enough, it'll eventually become doctrine. I mean, mean, we'll we'll just codify it and make it our theology. And there's, there's so many erroneous thoughts about God that need to be broken. And and all of us have grown up with with thoughts about God that had to be changed in order that we could somehow receive from God that which ultimately he wanted to get to us. I I know there are people right now that that you grew up in in a religious system that had erroneous thoughts about salvation. In fact, those thoughts about salvation could, could have been from anything, well, I'm a good person and I'll just do good things, And as long as I do enough good things, then God will think I'm a good person. Therefore, he'll receive me and I'll get to go to heaven. Well, that's an erroneous thought. Because how do you know how much good is enough good? You know, how how do you know if you've done enough? I realize all of us are probably better than Adolf Hitler. And of course, if he's your measuring stick, then everybody gets in. But how do you know who's the measuring stick and how do you do all this? So I know people grow up with, with, with these ideas of what it means to be saved and And there was a day someone shared with you that you couldn't do enough good in order to merit God's salvation. You had to repent from your sin and open up your heart and receive him personally by faith into your life and allow that grace to empower and change and transform you. And and, and so we had to be taught that truth. There were all sorts of erroneous thoughts that I grew up with how to be filled with the Spirit. And, And, you know, I grew up in a system that didn't even believe that it existed despite it being in the Bible. And it's amazing how many things are in the Bible that people just say that doesn't count. But it was one of those areas and I had to, I had to overcome and get through and be retaught and, and reprogrammed, so to speak, to understand exactly what it is that God wanted to do that I could receive his best. Areas of healing the same way. I'm amazed to this day there are churches that are out there that they don't believe that God heals today anymore and then they're surprised when it doesn't happen. And so we have to be retaught and rewired and redesigned in order to be able to receive God's healing power. And we could go on with, with numerous stories, perhaps even in your life, that, that, that you lived with for years until finally somehow, some way, maybe you read it in the Bible, it was taught to you in an appropriate way. Maybe God just opened up your eyes and revealed it to you. But there were all sorts of erroneous thoughts and errors that existed that had to be broken in order for you to receive ultimately what God wanted to do in your life. Now, can I just share this with you? This was a really important point for me, and I know it will be for you. And that is just because you get that breakthrough once doesn't mean it won't happen more times. There are a lot of people who think once they get the born again breakthrough that they've got all the breakthrough they're ever going to get. Then there are some people who think that they, once they got the baptism with the Holy Ghost breakthrough, they got all the breakthrough they're ever going to get. There are some people get the healing breakthrough in their mentality, and that's all they're ever going to get. Why don't you just settle it right now? God is infinite. You are finite. You're going to have to break through your whole life long. 
There are going to be things that you're going to run across, stumble across, read, see, hear. It's going to be unveiled to you that you probably have never heard before. I've been preaching the gospel. You've heard me say this for decades. And there are still things I'll hear to this very day. I'd never considered that before. And it becomes a key or a door in my life that I can move through in order for God to do things for me. If there was one thing I wish I could teach God's people is to be teachable. It's amazing how much preaching and teaching we do, well, I won't say, to unteachable people. I was going to say to knotheads, but then I thought, well, that's just really not very kind. So I won't say that. I'll just say unteachable people. We've got to be teachable. You've, you've got to say, you know what, maybe, maybe I don't have the knowledge of the universe res- resident in me. There may be some things I really need to know and really need to receive. And perhaps the greatest evil that religion perpetrates on people is that it hides from us simple truth about how God works with us in order to bring us to his promises of abundance, resources, and help. Does it not amaze you that we have people all over our city, nation, all over our world who would say, yes, I am a Christian, but they're living lives that are not abundant. They're absolutely out of whack, out of order, trauma, tragedy, dysfunctionality, and they all know God. Why is that? It's because they've not had some simple breakthroughs. In understanding that that you can say yes to Jesus and he can redeem you, but there's a lot more blueprint to apply to one's life. Some of you in this room, much like me, have grown up spiritually with what I call a poverty mentality. I I confess to you, I I grew up, it's no fault of of my mom and dad, it's absolutely none of their faults. They grew up in a culture. They grew up in an atmosphere. My dad's dad passed away when he was nine years old. He died, my granddad, I never knew him. My dad was nine years old and my granddad died when my dad was nine when he was driving a truck on a street corner a small town in western Kansas. So immediately, because of the size of my, of my dad's family, there were six kids, and obviously my grandmother was widowed, and everybody went to work. When you're nine and ten years old, when, when he went to work, he wasn't just working in, in, in order to have fun money. He was working in order to have money that the family could eat. And so at, at nine and ten years old, he would sweep out the movie theater, and he would do all sorts of little odds and end jobs, and and, and all of them had to do this, and they all brought their monies together in order that they could survive because of that tragedy that took place in his household. And, and you have traumas like that that begin to take place, and, and then you grow up through a, a, an era with a mindset. You grew up through the Depression, and in that particular area of the, of the Depression, many grew up in that and, and realized that, for instance, that if you couldn't pay your, your mortgage off, that the bank could seize it instantly. And, and there were all these sorts of notes that were out there and, and people were taking away all that they had worked their life for. And, and those laws have changed somewhat in our culture so they can't do, the banks and the mortgage companies can't do like they did during the Depression. But the problem was there was a mentality that began to seep into our psyche and, and it's, just, it's just prevalent that, that we're hoarders and we, we clutch and it's, it's hard to let loose because what if this happens or what if that happens? And, and, and so we live not so much without because as Americans, we are in the top 3% of the world in wealth. If, if you just make 30000 a year, let's say, which is, which is a 
you know, not a difficult household income probably to begin to achieve. I'm telling you, you're in the top 3% of the world. So we live pretty well as Americans. I mean, you could go down to the roughest part of town and they may live in a trailer, but they'll have a big satellite dish out in the front yard. I mean, we ain't hurting here in America. But we've developed this, this, this mentality that despite all the things that we have, there is this fear. And, 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 we're, and we're told then by religion, this is what we're told, that God somehow endorses our poverty. That if we don't have much, God endorses it. And not only that, that if we begin to accrue too much, what happens is, both outside the church and inside the church, we begin to, to judge one another. And we look at each other and we begin to wonder if we have too much. Because we've got this whole messed up psyche. So we judge each other's standard of living. And, and, and there's just this teaching. And I grew up in it. I grew up in a poverty-minded religious system. I mean, we were just, we were, we were poverty-minded. I mean, we'd, we'd raise money and we'd look at people and just say, if you can give a buck, that'll be great. And so everybody said, well, I can do that. I can give a buck, you know. I, I mean, we lived in this mentality. We have allowed the world to determine certain things about us. How many of you know that the minute the church prospers, the minute a, a, a pastor prospers or a Christian prospers, instantly the world seizes that and they begin to point their fingers at it and begin to say, how can you live like that? Well, I want to point my finger back and say the same way you do. If it were up to the world, they would starve us out of existence. Do you understand that? If it were up to the world, they would choke off all resource to the church and to God's people. They would want to do that. We need to begin to understand that God isn't glorified when, when resource isn't coming to his children and to his church. God isn't glorified in that. God understands that he's got to release resource into his church because his church was to be that agent that cooperated with him in order to preach, to teach, to reach out and to help facilitate redemption in the earth. God isn't glorified. I'll just, I'm just going to say a couple things. God isn't glorified when his kids ride around in unsafe vehicles. God isn't glorified if you have to live in a bad neighborhood and always worried about if your kids are going to get shot or exposed to drugs. I don't think God's glorified by that. It's not a badge of righteousness to live in the ghetto. You may have to live in a ghetto, but I don't think that's a particular honor or a badge of righteousness. I don't think it glorifies God when there's no heat in the winter and perhaps no air in the summer. If you can't get your kids into a decent school to help them get educated in order to prosper and to go forward in life. I don't think that that necessarily honors God when they're illiterate. I don't think it honors God if you can't give to missions and you can't help the local church. We need to understand that God wants to prosper his people. Amen. Now, you should have walked with me long enough to know that I'm not sitting here on television just building bigger barns saying, soul, take thine ease. We, we are called to do a work that God will have to prosper our hands in order to get that work done. And it's going to start by changing a mentality. And we need to wake up. God is not somehow blessed by your impoverished status. God wants you to prosper. He delights, the Bible says, in the prosperity of his children. Psalm 84 verse 11 says that no good thing will be withheld from the righteous. Psalm 35 verse 27, that's the verse. God delights in the prosperity of his servant. If we want to move from good to great, then we're going to have to get some more revelation on this point. 
because the tradition of poverty within the church is great. It has caused us to fear. It has caused us to become tight. And we will never win a city. We will never win the world. We will never do all that God has called us to do until that thing's broken in us. We fear. We fear more in the church than we even do sometimes in the world. I think the world has more faith at times than we have. We've got to break out of these particular fears. We have to understand that the future is in God's hands. He's never seen the righteous begging for bread. We've got to, get, we've got to trust God more than we trust Walmart. We've got to trust God more than we trust our employers. I'm telling you, I've got to trust God more than I trust you. Now, I'm not, I'm not mad at you. I'm just saying you're not my source. God's my source. We've got to trust God. All of us have to trust God. But some of us trust our portfolios. We trust, we trust our savings accounts. We, we, trust, we, we, we trust everything we can see in the natural. And we wonder why God doesn't release the supernatural. Because whatever you trust in, therein lies your source. And I'm sorry, but First Federal, I like those people, but they're not my source. Wachovia is not my source. Duke Energy, the little bit I have in Duke Energy is not my source. And we've got to begin to break that and understand that his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. And when we begin to break that mentality, I, be, I believe you'll begin to see God do some incredible things in your life. Now... I just want to give you an illustration of one person who got God's attention. There are a number of people in the Bible. I could go through this. I mean, we could spend weeks talking about people that got God's attention. They needed God's hand to move in their circumstance and in their life. But I just want to draw attention to one person. And I'm going to take one of the most desperate situations you can imagine. I figure that's probably the best one to use. If you find somebody who's desperate, they can speak to us. So in Luke's gospel, I want to start there. Chapter 4. I'm going to read this quickly and then I'm going to jump over to 1 Kings 17. So you can put your fingers over there. But this is going to help you. It's really going to help you. Luke 4, verse 24. Listen to what Jesus says. He's starting his ministry off, Jesus. And he says, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah. Now he's, now he's fixing to set up a story. He says there's lots of widows in the days of Elijah. It says here what? That the heaven was shut up. There was a closed heaven over Israel in those days, the days of Elijah. He says for three years and six months, great famine throughout the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now those verses caught my attention. Because Jesus draws our attention at the beginning of his ministry to a woman who was living in a time period where the windows of heaven had shut, shut down. They, they were shut up. Uh, there was famine in the land. There hadn't been rain in the earth. The economy was terrible. People were starving. People were dying. To add problems on top of that misery was she'd lost her husband. There was, there was no resource, extra resource. Coming into our household, things were about as bleak as you could get in her particular situation. But he uses this woman in order to springboard into something that's very important. Because despite her bleak and desperate situation, she had an ability to move God's hand and get his attention in a situation that looked to be traumatic. 
1 Kings chapter 17. I want to read the story to you real quickly and give you the account of a woman who was just hours. Listen to me. She was hours away from a disaster. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 8, it says this. Then the word of the Lord came to him, meaning Elijah, saying, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, As surely, excuse me, as the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Now she's positive, isn't she? We're just going to finish off what we've got and then we're going to die. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Blessed be the name of Jesus. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterward, make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. Now, I, I want to just share a couple of things so that we can understand exactly how this widow, this, in a desperate situation, how this widow got God's attention, how the hand of God began to move. Number one, I want you to realize that, number one, she was a spiritual person. Now, I was kind of kidding the account here when I had made mention that she said, yeah, we're going to go eat a little bit and then we're going to die. But truth of the matter is, there was also a spiritual dimension to this widow. It says here in verse 9 that uh, she walked so close to God that he was able to speak to her, apparently, whether it was in an audible voice or whether he put a, a great impression upon her spirit, we don't know. But the Lord said to the prophet that he had commanded the widow to prepare for Elijah's eventual coming. So she was able to hear the voice of the Lord command her to be prepared and to be ready to tend to and to feed the prophet. Now, I'm not real smart, but I can deduce a couple of things from that. Number one is she had to have had a relationship with God in order for him to speak to her. Number two is she had to have had some level of communication with the Lord. She had to have prayed in order for, again, God to get through the pipeline to begin to, to, to speak to her. And, and I think all of that seems rationally and redemptively so, because how many of you know if you're on the brink of a disaster if you're on the brink of tragedy, if you're in a desperate situation, we're talking a life and death situation, how many of you know the human heart well enough to know we pray? I mean, when things go bad, you can count on one thing. People seek God. Amazing, is it not? I mean, if it's, if it's bad, if it looks bleak, we're going to get before God and we're going to want God in our situation. And it's interesting, I think, that God had some level of confidence that she would obey. So he spoke to her and had a level of confidence that when he spoke to her, that she would enter into and she would obey the thing 
that he asked of her to do. Now, hear me. True spirituality is not only praying and seeking God, but having a track record of obedience. How many of you know that if God talks to us and speaks to us, listen to me very carefully. We all want God to show up. We want his hand to move. We want his arm to be seen when we have a tough, difficult situation. I know human beings well enough to know that's what they do. Listen to me. If God were to say something to you at that moment of that difficult, tragic, traumatic situation, have you developed a record of faithful obedience with him that if he spoke to you, he he knows that you would obey it even in that trauma? Are you hearing me? He isn't going to say something to you all of a sudden and then, and, then, and then just think, oh, oh, they'll obey instantly. I, I think there has to be a track record of obedience. If she'd not been obedient in the past, I, I don't think God's going to send his prophet to go get fed there. I mean, why would you send your prophet to go get fed there if he knows he's not going to find obedience? So obviously there was a foundation of obedience. It brought her to this point. It didn't keep her from having a traumatic, difficult moment. But, but she had that track record of obedience that God was now able to speak to her, speak into this situation, and there was a confidence that she would obey and she could begin to see the hand of God move. That is why last week when I was sharing with you was so important. If we do not have a track record of obedience with the Lord, if we have not put into motion those things that he asks of us to do by way of obedience, that he has codified and he's put in his word, then when we get to those moments of challenge, trauma, tragedy, difficulty, we are in a a sad situation if we don't have an obedient track record behind us. Let me tell you something. If I want God to move in my life and I'm facing difficulty, it sure enough makes a difference. I'll just be honest with you. Tracy and I have had uh, financial challenges through the years, but I can tell you this. It feels good to go before God and say, Oh God, for 25 years I've been faithful to give you my first fruit. I've been faithful. Now I understand that we're facing a challenge at this moment, but I'm coming to you right now. I may not be a perfect human being, but i got clean hands in this one. And let me tell you something, there's an authority that comes that through the years has seen all of our needs met. Now that doesn't doesn't somehow exempt us from facing those challenging moments, but I can tell you this, it's a wonderful thing. And if you're a widow in a desperate situation, it's a wonderful thing to be able to say, you know what, I have a foundation of obedience here, I can hear the voice of God, and even though what he's asking of me may be unusual, he knows that he can trust me with it. Amen. Number two, she was spiritual, number one. Number two, she was desperate. She was desperate. There was a harsh famine in the land. There was no husband to help meet the expenses. There was no high-paying job that widows could get in that particular era. And to complicate the situation, she had this dependent son. And apparently he was in sad shape because... because it says here that he would eventually pass away and Elijah had to address that, but... But she was desperate. I mean, this was a desperate situation. And this is the hard truth. And that is desperation is often the tool that God uses to unveil his ways to us. Can I say that again? Desperation is often the tool God uses to unveil his ways to us. I really wish people would hear God when it was going good in their life. Can I just say, is it not true for most of us that he has to ring our bell and get our attention and put us in a situation before we kind of get it? And he uses that in order to unveil before our face that which ultimately is his way and and is his path. 
And if you're desperate, you'll try anything. Amen? I, I mean, I'm amazed. When people are desperate, they'll do anything. Nothing's too embarrassing. Nothing's too outlandish. Nothing's too crazy. Nothing's too much. If you're desperate, I mean, I've seen it so many times. The doctors will declare somebody to be terminal. And all of a sudden, they'll, yeah, I'll try God. All of a sudden, the whole portfolio is wiped out. Yeah, I'll try God. I'll try anything. Show me. Talk to me. Speak to me. It would be great if we could just get it before that moment. But truth of the matter is, for a lot of us, it takes a desperation for us to understand the ways of God. And she was desperate. Now, it didn't mean she wasn't spiritual. didn't mean she hadn't prayed. didn't mean she wasn't obedient as much as she could be up to that moment. But God was still trying to lead her into a greater understanding of something. So she was desperate. Number three, she was on a deadline and she was discouraged. You say, well, how do you know she was discouraged? Well, as I was reading through this, I noticed in verse 12 what it said here. She says to the prophet, she says, as the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread. I thought that was interesting that she said, as your God lives. She didn't say, as my God lives. She said, as your God lives. Now, now, now don't be critical of her because she's just discouraged. She's in a desperate situation. She's on a deadline. She, and, and to make matters worse, she knew Elijah was coming and she knew there wasn't going to be enough. How, how would you like that? For God to speak to you and tell you you were going to have a guest and you didn't have enough in your cupboard. I mean, most of us wouldn't like that. So I have to believe that she wanted to feed him. But what do you do when you want to do something or you have a desire to do something and, and you might be willing to do something but you don't have enough to get it done. What do you do when there seems to be a want to, but you can't, and, and you're in your own desperate situation, and God hasn't supplied for the need yet? I mean, how do you get through that? How do you get through those moments when there are 11th hour needs? Anybody here ever have an 11th hour need? It's like you're coming up to a deadline, and I mean, it's 11th hour. God, if you don't come through, I'm hung. If you don't come through, this thing's, this thing's falling apart. And you pray and you believe and you wait, but for some reason God doesn't seem to move. Well, maybe you can understand this woman just a little bit better because she was discouraged. People were uh, coming to her house. She's got a son and herself who are about ready to die. God's asking her to do something here that seems a little bit strange as she looks at her whole circumstance. And it's an 11th hour request. She's on a deadline and she's discouraged. You've been there, haven't you? I have. God, if you don't show up, we're hung. If you don't show up, we've got a major problem here. There's a problem in River City, capital T, and that rhymes with whatever. And, and I'm just telling you, it's a problem. Number four. She was willing to try the unorthodox. Isn't that cool? It says, Elijah said to her, don't fear. Go and do as you said. Make me a small cake from it and bring it to me. And afterward, make some for yourself and your son. I, I, I read that and I thought to myself, this question, how could Elijah ask that of her, knowing her condition? Do you know what, do you know what the media would do with that today? I, I, lived, I lived in Spartanburg, South Carolina when PTL blew up. We were less than an hour from PTL. We knew a lot of the people that worked there. And, and many of you remember back in 88, 89, those particular years, how when all that happened, man, they hammered Jim Baker. They hammered Jimmy Swagger. They hammered these people. And let me just say this. I'm not defending them. There were things that were absolutely in error 
out of bounds? Absolutely. But I'm just here to tell you, anytime, anytime the church goes to soliciting any sort of resource or finance or challenge to people, you just, you watch the world. Oh, they're taking money from people who need it. They're taking money from desperate folks. What about all those, what about all those little widows and people that couldn't afford it that sewed it into PTL and all those kind of things? I mean, what about all that kind of stuff? Can I just share this with you? This, is, this was my response as people asked me about all of that. And I said, well, if you were giving, if you were giving to a building or if you were just giving to a thing, then, then you know what? You're probably in trouble. But if you're giving as unto the Lord... Every dime you invest is under the Lord. We'll come back. I've given, I've given to Swagger and I've given to Baker. I've given to other guys on the television set. I can guarantee, we've written off checks to all sorts of people all through the years. We have done that. And not all of them probably have done exactly what I thought maybe should have been done. But you know what? Here's what I did. When I gave it, I wasn't giving it to them. I was giving it to him. And when I give it to him, I'm still qualified to receive. See, that's the part we don't get because what we see is if there is a need, I will give to a need. And the problem is when you give to a need, that need becomes your source and it can't resource you because it's a need. But if I release unto God, He has all resource. That's the revelation we got to get. It's the most frustrating thing at times, this is through the years, is that if you present a need... Everybody will write off checks. But if you just say, hey, how about let's just give to God. I don't know about that. God don't need my money. But yet, you understand? And so here we go in this this particular case. Elijah looks at her and he says something that we'd have hammered him for. I mean, the newspapers, the media, you you could see a current affair. You could see Bill O'Reilly. You could see them all running saying, what are you doing? She's a widow, she's dying, it's her last bit of oil and her last little bit of flour, and you're taking it from her. God, he's he's a cult. No, there comes a moment that the prophet had to cut off her connection to fear. He had to cut off her connection to natural resource and understand that she had to take a faith action in order to put in motion the hand of God. That's not me. That's not this, it's not this, this little thing we do as ministers of the gospel. It's what God says in his word. So she responds and mixes, mixes her obedience and mixes her praying with some giving. And all of a sudden, God's able to open up the heavens and move in her situation. Can I just share this with you? God will ask strange things from us. I mean, he will. I'll just be straight up. If everything in your spiritual life is just logical and rational and perfectly in order and it fits on a P&L sheet, then you are walking with God. There are times God looks at us and he says, I'm going to ask you to jump out of boats and keep your eyes on me. I'm going to ask you to let me spit on the ground, pick up some mud and throw it in your eye. I'm going to ask you to do some things that are just out of the norm. But if you will do this, you will begin to see my hand move in your life. And God does that in order that he can break off our connection to fear, break off our connection to the natural. He wants to break off our trust system into the things of this world so we'll begin to trust him. Yes, he does. 
Yes, he does. And that's when we see the hand of God move. I don't want to see the hand of the bank move. I want to see the hand of God move. I do. I don't want to see the hand of my portfolio move or my 401k move. I want to see the hand of God move. That's what's wrong in America. We get it all figured out, set up, logical, rational, and then it all happens like we planned it. And then we, then we run around and go say, praise God, praise God. And it wasn't God. She was willing to try the unorthodox. Number five, and it said here that she gave everything she had. Her gift moved God. Her gift moved God. She cleared out the cabinet. She gave what was before her. And, and, it, and it moved the Lord. It moved the hand of the Lord. You know, the Lord uh, is interesting is how he looks at when we give and when we do things like this. The world tends to look at our giving by the amount that has been given. I'll say that again. The world tends to look at giving by the amount that has been given. But it's interesting. God sees that. But I'm convinced after reading several stories in the scripture that the Lord doesn't so much look at the amount that is given. I think the Lord looks at the amount that's left over. This widow didn't have much. You've got to understand, she didn't have much. But everything she had, she gave. Now, it's interesting to me because you'll hear the stories about Bill Gates and giving his, you know, billions of dollars to whatever initiative it is. And that's a wonderful thing. I think it's to education. And so what a wonderful thing that is to give money for education and helping impoverished kids to be educated. And we'll put them on the front of Time and Newsweek and U.S. News and World Report and, and we'll clap our hands and, and we'll venerate him as a wonderful philanthropist. Or, or, or we'll look at what Warren Buffett was another one. Gave all his money away and, and gave it to charitable organizations. Gave it to uh, Bono of U2 in order that he could work, I think, and work on the AIDS crisis. And that's a wonderful thing. I, I, it needs to be resourced. And we all clap and we'll put him on all the media outlets and we'll champion him as a philanthropist. But here's the part that I think we need to understand. If you give away a billion, but you still got billions in the bank, then I'm not sure that really moves God. But if you'll give a hundred bucks and all you got left is a dollar in the bank, I believe God will move his hand for you. I believe that hundred bucks means a whole lot more in the hands of God than that one billion does. Are you hearing what I'm saying? You remember that story about Jesus when he was standing? This is interesting because, because if I were to tell you a story about where you think Jesus would be if he was standing around watching people, we would probably say, well, I would think Jesus would be watching people as they pray. Or that he would be watching people perhaps as they, uh, as they worship him or as they're reading their Bible. But you read one story, Jesus is in the house of God and he's standing right next to the collection plate. In fact, it's in Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 44. Mark 12 and 44. He is standing, the Bible says, why don't we just read this? Because this will really blow your mind. He is standing right by the collection plate. Mark 12, 44. No, 41, go up to 41. It says, now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how people put money into the treasury. Now, I want you to imagine this for just a second. Here's the dude with, 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 with like the offering bag or the box or whatever it is. It's just here. Jesus is just standing right here. People are walking by and he's putting it in and he's just going. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine me right now getting an usher standing right down here and just say, all right, we're going to take an offering. I'd make the news on that one too, wouldn't I? It's amazing. It's amazing what the Bible says when you read it.
So he's standing there watching this thing happen, watching people, you know, throwing in their bucks. And it says here that a poor widow, another widow came and threw in two mites, which make a, a quadrant. And uh, according uh, to my Bible, it's just, you know, they're very small copper coins. And I, she probably put in a, a, a few cents and, it, and it, you know, raised it to a quarter. I don't know. So, but it was really small. And so he called his disciples and he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For, all that, for they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Now, I know we read this and everybody says when they read this, they say, you say, it doesn't matter how much I give. It doesn't matter. See, just a widow. She, he affirmed the widow. He blessed the widow. And all she had was just a few coins, just a couple bucks. So it really doesn't matter how much I give. No, listen to what it said. It doesn't matter how much you give. It all depends on how much is left over. Are you with me? I mean, that's what's beginning to move the hand of God because she gave out of her lack. And so if, if you give a thousand, let's say, but you have thousands left over, we, certainly God sees the thousand and I'm not saying he won't bless and he always blesses givers and I'm not saying that but all I'm simply saying is that a thousand given with thousands left over is not the same as a hundred given with one left over you're with me now you need to understand when it comes time to move the hand of God her gift moved God that's what I'm beginning to learn. That's what we're learning in our household. I'm just telling you where Trace and I are. Why should God be moved by what I do if I'm not moved? I always want God to be moved, but I'm not going to move. I want God to be moved, but I, I, I'm not going to do anything that moves me. I'm going to play it safe. I'm going to keep everything I need just perfectly right. So in case God doesn't come through, I'm not totally hung. And I'm learning that if, if what I do doesn't move me, if what I'm beginning to do doesn't, doesn't put something inside of me that moves me, why would God be moved? But he looks at a couple of these widows who are in desperate situation, and because of what they did, it moved him. I've shared this story before, but I'm going to share you another couple of details that you may not have known. It was years ago, and it was back at, at, at a time period in our life where really... Absolutely every dime was spoken for in our household. And uh, we, we were faithful tithers and we always gave unto the Lord his due and we were obedient. But to be candid with you, there wasn't a whole lot left over. And we'd pay our bills and we were faithful in that regard. And I can remember there came an opportunity for us to sow. And I can remember when, when it was being shared and it was being taught about sowing and I can remember sitting there listening, and you've got to understand, and I'm going to affirm my wife because she is so much better than I am in this area. Maybe, maybe women in general are just better, but I know my wife's way better than I am in this area. She has an ability to trust. Maybe, it, maybe it's because for so many women, in, even in their relationships, they have to trust us with money and making money and all those kind of things. So maybe, maybe women are just wired in a, in a way that they can trust a little easier. I don't know. I don't, I'm not trying to analyze it. All I know is she's much better than I am at it. And so there was a challenge that went out, and, you know, we all knew how it worked in our ledger system. I mean, there just, there just wasn't hardly, you know, $10, $20 left over. And, and so I, I was in service, and I was sitting on the platform one day, and, 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 and an opportunity to sew was given, and, and she was down, like, in the front row like she was here, and that came that moment, and it was a compelling moment. I won't deny it, it was a compelling moment. 
And, and you, some of you have heard this story. She began to flash numbers with me with her hand. And I knew what she was doing. She was saying, would it, basically, would it be okay? You know, okay, I'm going to write a check for... Well, I'm watching all the hand signals happening. Well, I thought she flashed me 25. And I thought, well, yeah, we, I mean, you know, it's going to cut into our out-to-eat stuff. And I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's not like $25. I mean, it, was, it wasn't like there was pain associated with it. But, it. but like I said, when you're in a place where every penny's accounted for and time, I mean, that can still be a lot of money. And, and, and so I thought, okay, yeah, that's our, uh, 25. That's good. That's good. So I said, hallelujah, you know. <laughs> Service went on, offering received, all that. And uh, it was interesting because she, she, she was so in to believe God for a hundredfold return because she was needing a job. She was, she was changing jobs or going into the next phase of her job. And she needed 25000 a year. That's what we wanted God to do. And it would really help us out for 25000 a year. And, and so, uh, so she was believing for that. And so we're getting in the car or the, the van on the way home, and we're driving home. And she looked at me, and she had this smile on her face. She goes, well, honey, I really appreciate you letting me write that check. I really do appreciate it. And so I'm sitting there going, well, well sure. <laughs> Let it never be said that I'm not benevolent. Well, I really appreciate that, because I really didn't think you'd let me write that check. Oh, yeah, you know, you know, so we're having, suddenly it dawned on me as we're having this conversation that she had not signaled to me $25, she had signaled to me $250. Now, I'm just here to tell you, in those days, that was a lot of money. I understand $250 today, it may not be a lot of money to some, and, and, and it would probably be relatively easy for us to write it off today. But I'm telling you, in those days, that was a lot of money. That was big bucks in our house. And so she said, 200, yeah, $250. And I said, $250! <laughs> Which is really funny, because man of faith, oh, yeah, yeah. But, uh, $250, it was like fear. Fear just leapt all over me. What do you mean 250 bucks? Well, I flashed you the number. No, you never, I never, you never flashed me that. That's a zero. Man. We're gonna, we're gonna have to get our signals down. I mean, all the way home, man, I'm in this, I'm just, and, and it's really a hard place because, like, she's being generous. So it's not like you can really get mad. But you're mad. <laughs> Have you ever been there? God. Well, I get, you know, and she's going, I gave it to God. I believe in God for a, for a job, $25,000 a year job. I, 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 I don't want to hear it. $250. I'm not joking. I probably, it was probably one of those moments that if you really would have saw how I acted, you just would have said, I can't believe Pastor would act that way. And I, I did probably. I was just, I was just, I have $250. $250, man. $250. Man. A few weeks later, she comes in and she just says, I want you to know, I got the job. Well, how much are they going to give you? $25,000 a year. 
I felt about that big. <laughs> Preaching the gospel, man of faith and power, and I felt about that big. Because you see, this is what's interesting. Because God doesn't move because I got pastor in front of my name. He doesn't move just because I get to preach to you and get to oversee a local church. He doesn't move for me based on that. He will, he will bypass me in a heartbeat, and he'll go to a woman sitting in her seat, just being obedient to God writes the check and God will say, I see what's in your heart and I see what you're doing. And I'll leave the big shots alone, but I'll move for you. I'll move for you. And let me, and let me just tell you, I, I walked away and I said that, that, that uh, wow. Because you got to understand, I grew up in poverty mentality. I grew up, I grew up in my household. Again, I'm not, I'm not faulting anybody. I, I'm not, it's not, it's not my parents' fault. It's not the world's fault. I'm not blaming anybody. It's my fault. I take responsibility that I have been inculcated by this culture and at times by religion to think somehow God doesn't want me to prosper. God doesn't want me to move into greatness. God really doesn't want me to do any of those things. And that is a lie. It is a lie for me, and it is a lie for you. God is not honored by your poverty. He is not honored by the fact of the matter that your life is menial, and it doesn't seem like much is going on. God's not honored by that. He may want you to be faithful and obedient, and it may be a season, but you've got to get it into your psyche and into your heart and into your belief system that God has called you to something greater. God has called you to aspire. God has called you to do exploits. God has called you to prosper. God has called you to leave an inheritance for your children and your children's children. God wants to do these things. God is raising up a church that can't be explained any other way except He raised it up. God is tapping the resource of the wicked and He's putting it into the hands of the righteous. God is wanting to do these things, but it's got to get into our psyche and we got to quit thinking poverty and start thinking resource we got to we got to we've got to not just scrounging our way through life but beginning to see that god can move us if if we understand that he is our source and for our church to go into the future and for us to do what god has called us to do in this city and let me just say this, the reason I'm sharing these things is because of this. This, this year, for whatever reason, God has just brought to my attention that the, that the issue of resource and finance is the one area we've got to break through on. I'm not going to apologize for that. If you're a guest with us today, I guess I want you to know that, that I don't spend an inordinate amount of time on this. Through the years, I've done my best to avoid it because I know what people think. But I can't avoid it. I've got to begin to declare some things publicly to deal with powers and principalities. I've got to deal with the spirit of poverty. I've got to begin to declare God's heart in the earth. I've got to begin to say those things and articulate those things to break down those walls and that spirit, that thing that is shored up resource. And for us to go forward, it's one of those areas for the life of legacy, we've got to break through that. We've just got to break through. Let me, let me just share this with you. You say, well, pastor, tell us the need. Listen, I could give you a list of need for an hour. But I don't want you giving for a need. I need you to get a revelation to leave some resource in his hand for you to be blessed. I'm not trying to get money from you to meet needs. I'm trying to get you positioned to be blessed immensely, abundantly, more than you could ever begin to imagine. We need the heavens to be open. We need the hand of God to move. And 
And next week, Clay will be sharing, and he's at liberty. He's going to share whatever God puts on his heart. But let me just share this with you. That, that, that first Sunday, believe it or not, will be the week after that, the first Sunday of November. And I'm going to teach that Sunday morning on what I've entitled Building a Memorial. And I'm going to receive on that day the offering at the end of service. I'm not going to receive it in our normal time, but on that Sunday I'm going to receive it at the end of service. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to teach one more time about what God can do in this particular area. And I'm going to ask God in these next couple of weeks what He's asking of me and our household personally in order that we can begin to see the windows of heaven open and the hand of God move in our finances. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to have a table set up here. And, and, and it may feel uncomfortable, you don't have to participate, but I've decided if God's talking to me about it, I'm going to present it to the congregation and we'll just do it together. But I'm going to br just build a table, a memorial table. I'll teach on this in November. And we're going to bring the tithe and we're going to bring the offering and we're going to set it on that table. And, and, and we're going to build a memorial. Now, I understand you don't understand all that that means now, but you will that Sunday. And we're going to build a memorial with, with our praying and with our giving, and we're going to break that spirit over people's lives. And we're going to break that spirit over this church, and we're going to break that spirit over Charleston. I'm convinced that in Charleston, there, there's, there's, there's class distinction that has become a stronghold. And you have the wealthy, and then you have, then you have those that just, you, you just live life. And I'm telling you, God is breaking that down, and he wants ordinary people to do extraordinary things, and he's going to move in this area that we can win our city. Yes, he is. And, and, and this is what I'm going to ask, and, and you can pray about it. I'm not doing this emotionally. If I really wanted to do this emotionally, I'd, get, I'd have you get your checkbook out right now. I'd have you write it this morning. But I don't want it to be emotional. I want you to get before God and I want you to ask God what he would have you to do. Because I'll bring my tithe. The first Sunday I'll bring my tithe and then I'm going to bring my memorial offering. And I'm going to present it to the Lord and we're going to pray over those things. And we're going to believe God to break this spirit. I want this spirit broken once and for all in my life. I want it broken in your life. I want it broken in this church's life. We are not going to apologize for needing resource to do the work of the kingdom. We're not going to do it. You say, well, people might not understand it. Tough. Tough. Let them live in poverty. If that's how they choose to live, let them live. If they don't understand, they don't get the ways of God anyway. We've got to begin to decide who we trust. Will we be like the widow woman and trust God, or will it always have to make sense? I'm going to, I'm going to do a totally spiritual moment and present my memorial before the Lord and say, oh God, I'm, I'm tr my trust system is in you. And I know our mind's going, what's the need? What's the need? What's the need? Thousands of needs. The question is, who do you trust? Your need? Or do you trust your God? I want to see the hand of God move. I could go on and on and on. But I want to see the hand of God move. How about you? You want to see the hand of God move? And this is what we're going to do. Listen to me now. Now, again, there's no... There, I, hey, the one thing you can say is, is that pastor didn't do an emotional plea. He didn't manipulate you in any way, shape, or form. Because this is two weeks from today. You've got two weeks. If you don't want to do anything after two weeks, you, you can bring an empty envelope and put it on there and I'll never know. And you won't be embarrassed. You'll save face. I'm not here to embarrass you. I'm not here to put you on the spot. I'm not here to have you do something you're not ready to do. I'm not, I'm not in any way trying to leverage another dime out of you. I'm trying to get us positioned to see God's hand move.
I want you to consider it. On your way out, I asked Will that, that I've created just these envelopes. And this one envelope says, I am believing that God's hand will be moved for. And it just looks like an offering envelope. And this is my memorial offering to the Lord. And if God speaks to you, I want, I want you to put something in that. And two weeks from today, I want you to bring that envelope. And again, we're going to take one offering. We're going to bring the tithe. We're going to bring the offering. We're going to bring our memorials. And we're going to build a memorial. And with God as my witness, we're going to break that spirit of poverty. We're just going to do it. We're, we're, we're going to break lack over people's lives. I want you to go seek God. Don't, don't, don't hear what just I'm saying. You go seek God. Because when it's all said and done, you don't trust me. You need to trust God. See, that was the widow woman. She, she wasn't trusting Elijah. She was trusting God. And we've all got to reach that point where we say, I, I've got to trust God in order to see him move in my life in a unique and special way. So you can get these on the way out if you'd like to. And you can begin to pray about it. And you'll hear me remind. I'll remind through email and I'll remind you is what we're going to do. And on that Sunday, we're going to break the spirit of lack and poverty. And I believe as we move into 2007, there's going to be more than enough to do the job that he's called us to do. We're not going to gimmick you. We're, we're, we're not going to raise money and give you a little bookmarker and thank you for what you've done. We're not going to engrave little angels that you can set in a box somewhere that you never look at again. Because you gave, I'm here to say it is time we responded to God. And we broke this thing. I believe people, we're going to arise and it'll be our greatest moment. And next, next, not next week, but the week after that, I'm going to teach you how we, as, as Protestant, evangelical, full gospel believers, how we got that spirit of poverty on us. I'm going to teach that that first Sunday of November. How did it come to us? Why, why is it that that's such a struggle in our lives? I'm going to teach where it came from. And then when we enter into what we're going to do, I believe because we have revelation, we'll have authority and we'll be able to break that thing. Amen. Amen. Stand with me, will you please? Clay, would you come real quick? Real quick, would you come? Father, I thank you right now for these people. I thank you, Lord, for their willingness to be taught. I thank you for their consideration in these matters. That we need to see your hand move in this area. Lord, if I could hand this off to someone else, there are days I would like to, but... Lord, I know that you've placed me as pastor, and as pastor, fact of the matter is, I guess I'm the chief resource collector. I'm the one that's got to articulate, Lord, what you're saying and what you're doing. Lord, I know some of these people are in situations that aren't all that much different than that widow woman. They're difficult, tough circumstances. But Lord, I ask you right now that you begin by your Holy Spirit in these next two weeks to talk to them. I don't want them, I don't want them moved. I don't want them moving whether it's out of excitement and hype or whether it's out of guilt and obligation. I don't want them moving either way. I want them to move because you've talked to them. And they've heard from God. And they've responded in a way that, Lord, they know you spoke to them and they can trust you. Lord, there's need. You always... You always put before people a vision need. There's need for us to do the work. There's need for us to meet our obligations. There's always all kinds of need, Lord. But I break need, need mentality. I break that. Lord, let vision mentality come to us. Lord, I break the get-by spirit. And I ask that the greatness of God would begin to flow through the veins of your people right now that they would arise in this hour. 
And that, Lord, they would trust you like they've never trusted you. Believe that you can move like they've never believed before. Lord, I want them to experience a God moment. But, Lord, you're going to have to talk and deal and work. But, Lord, I believe in these next days and weeks and months, and even as we turn the corner into a new year, that, Lord, we can see the hand of God begin to move in this particular area. Lord, I know you're calling us. You're calling us to establish a work. You're calling us to do, do something that arrests the attention of the community. You're calling us to, to reach out and to, to begin to move in the media areas. You're causing us to use all the tools. You're calling us to do so much, Lord. But Lord, we've got to break out of the, the mentality that says there's not enough and begin to trust you that your resource is on the way. But Lord, we're going to have to offer you something that you can get involved in, a faith act. So I pray right now in the name of Jesus, you'll begin to mess with us in this area. Talk to us, speak to us. Lord, right now I bind every, anything that's critical, I bind right now in the name of Jesus. I bind the spirit of analysis and judgment in the name of Jesus. I bind that. I bind that rationality that comes that has to always have something make sense. Lord, I bind that in the name of Jesus. And right now, let us have a faith sense. In the name of Jesus. I bind and break any negativity. Lord, I say let the positive moving of God begin to invade us right now so that we can see that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Lord, I speak an atmosphere of faith. An atmosphere of faith right now. Let expectancy arise in the hearts of your people. Let us anticipate you talking to us. I break fear in the name of Jesus. All fear is broken right now. Lord, help us not to somehow think you're going to call us into something we can't do. But you're going to lead us into that which you will enable us to do. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you're going to talk to children right now and young people that don't have much but I believe there'll be young people who will say the little I've got I'll let it go and Lord I believe your hand will move for some of them and for children for children who who just get a few coins a week and yet I come and I watch them put it all they put it all in the bucket oh God give us that faith again Give us that, that expectancy again. Stir, Holy Ghost, in our midst. Stir in our midst. That we might be moved so that, Lord, you might be moved. For whatever we sow, that shall we also reap. However we sow, that shall we also reap. Lord, do that in us right now do that right now. I want us to sing. I want us to sing and I want you and your singing to begin to lift up and let your trust begin to well up and let your faith begin to well up. And then I'm going to pray one last time before we go but let's let that sound begin to invade the house of God and let faith begin to arise right now. Lead us. As I call, you answer